The Jodcast, The Final Frontier, with Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien, Mark Perver, and Neil Young. The Jodcast, May 2009 Extra Edition. Hello there and welcome to the May Extra Edition of The Jodcast for 2009. I'm Stuart Lowe and joining me is Jen Gupta. Hi Jen. Hi everyone. And we'll start the show with some corrections from the May episode of the Jodcast. Thanks to JamX in the forum who pointed out that the James Webb Space Telescope will not be launching via the Space Shuttle and instead it will be launching using an Ariane 5 ECA rocket. It would have been a bit hard for it to launch via the Space Shuttle seeing as it's being retired next year. Now we've got a couple of corrections for the night sky for May. Ian accidentally said that Venus has a magnitude of around plus four. Now hopefully all you Jodcast listeners are very eagle-eared and realise that he did mean to say minus four instead of plus four there. It would be a bit faint if it was plus four. And Stella in the forum has also pointed out that Ian said that Mercury had a very nice opposition at the end of April. Ian actually meant apparition, not opposition, and it was when Mercury was at its greatest eastern elongation. So, this week has been jam-packed with space-based astronomy milestones. We've had the Hubble servicing mission launch on Monday, the 11th of May. We had NASA Kepler announce that they've started taking science. And yesterday, the thing that I was most excited about was the launch of Planck and Herschel. The thing you're most stressed about. The thing I was most stressed about, yes. As I've been involved with instruments on Planck, so I had a lot riding on that rocket. (laughs) So, But we'll, we'll come back to those a bit later on in the show. So in the show this time, we hear about Planck and Herschel from the Jodrell Bank launch party. We put your questions to Tim O'Brien. But first, before all of that, let's catch up with some more of the interviews that Jen, Neil and the rest of the gang managed to get at Genam at the University of Hertfordshire. Yep, so we've got quite a few interviews left for you guys. I'm sure you'll be very pleased to hear that. We hear about the International Year of Astronomy and we even managed to interview a former Astronomer Royal. I've been joined by Professor Ian Robson director of the UK ATC. Ian is also very involved with the International Year of Astronomy in the UK and that's what we're here to talk about. I guess a good place to start with is what is the International Year of Astronomy? Well the International Year of Astronomy is a global celebration of of many things but uh, principally uh, 400 years really since the use of the telescope to do astronomical observations. I mean that's that's the hook in which it's all been arrested but but frankly it's a big celebration of astronomy and science now 40 years since the moon landing you know Darwin year and everything else like that. It all links in together with the celebration of science and so because astronomy is so fabulously visual and and just tremendously interesting to the general public we're very keen to, to bring things to the general public so they can just learn and, and just, just wonder about the, the marvels of astronomy. And we're a few months into the International Year of Astronomy. How's it going so far? Brilliantly, I'm still alive. My hair's going grey, <laughs> but, but it's going very, very well. I mean, within the UK, we're very fortunate that uh, we have a UK coordinator who, who really works and gets a lot of things done. That's Steve Owens. And so it, it really makes things a lot more beneficial for me. I mean, I come up with a number of ideas and and if it wasn't for having people like Steve on the ground, that they, they never actually come to fruition. And we've also been very fortunate in the UK as well because we've received actually quite quite good funding from uh, the Astronomical Society, Royal Astronomical Society, STFC, Institute of Physics. Um, and that's been very, very helpful. And we, we, we really had been hoping for major sponsorship from uh, one or two, like, banks. But unfortunately, <laughs> that went down the tube somewhat. So um, some of the things that we had intended to do in, in terms of the big things haven't come off, but actually Many, many local things have come up really, really well. And that's the thing that we're looking forward to in the UK, to have lots and lots of local events that, that people can find out what's going on with their local astronomy society, their local university.
university, you know, judge will bank open to everybody and things like that. That's what we're really keen to find, to get publicised and, and so people can find out what's going on by, by just looking on the web and essentially putting in a postcode, just like you do for normal things, and they'll come up with a list of all the things that are going on. What are some of the major events that are coming up in the next few months? We've just had the um, 100 hours, and, and for us in the UK, we had the uh, the Spring Moon Watch, which was uh, an eight or nine day period whereby uh, astronomy societies opened their doors and people came and looked through the telescopes. Uh, in the daytime, looked at the sun. In night, they looked at the first quarter moon and, and sort of marveled at the sort of craters and the and the mountains and the seas. And, and just looking at the moon through a telescope is just just really fabulous experience. If, if people haven't done it, they they've really no idea what they're missing because they all think about these oh distant galaxies and Hubble pictures and things like that but actually looking at the moon through the telescope is is one of the most fabulous things I think people can do it's just like wow that's really really cool and you know that's it's a, that's a great thing and that's what we're trying to do so coming up uh, after uh, spring moon watch we have um, there's a week coming up in July uh, which culminates in as uh, a meeting going on in London uh, Zion House commemorating Thomas Harriet the life and times of Thomas Harriet who was um, a British well an English sort of a astronomer gentleman scientist who actually looked through the telescope and, and drew a map of the moon before Galileo so so we Brits beat Galileo, uh, but we don't get any credit for it, and, and that's surprisingly because he didn't publish his observations. So there's a, there's a thing for all students, you know, if you get observations, publish them, or, or perish in, in history. And, and Harriet is, is pretty unknown, but, but if people um, just Wikipedia and uh, up, up Harriet, they find a really interesting person. So there's going to be one day celebration about, uh, about Thomas Harriet, and that week, of course, is also going to be the total solar eclipse in China, which we can't see in the UK, but of course that'll be webcast, and so that'll be something to do and also in that week of course it's the 40th anniversary of the Apollo landing and there's lots of TV uh, distribution about that so that will be that's the next big thing to watch uh, coming after that the major events of course in the in the summer it's you know it's light nearly all night in, in the UK and so the next big events will be the uh, the autumn moon watch which again will be uh, really encouraging people to go and look through telescopes and have a look at Jupiter this time with the Galilean satellites and that will be the end of October they're the big things coming up. So I guess as well the International Year of Astronomy is trying to get more children involved in astronomy and getting them interested in science. Have you been doing much work with schools? I personally haven't, but we have a, a lot of people who have. There are a number of initiatives in the UK to get schools interested and to deliver into schools. And one of the key things that I wasn't, the only thing I've been involved with in, in schools, is uh, a thousand uh, telescopes into a thousand schools. And so we got uh, a, a significant grant from the Science Technology Facilities Council uh, to purchase uh, a thousand telescopes from China, a good quality telescopes, um, come with a tripod and everything else like that. And uh, this has been run by the Society for uh, uh, Popular Astronomy. And it comes with a DVD which tells teachers how to use it. So a thousand schools have applied and uh, they've all got the telescopes now. And we've also sent them to a few STEM points. And so they're now being used and the feedback from those is excellent. They, they got them in time for the spring moon watch. And they were saying, wow, looking at the craters of the moon was just fabulous. Also looking at the rings of Saturn was good. I mean, the rings aren't inclined hugely, but nevertheless, you can, you can easily make them out with a telescope. And so that's been very, very positive. And, and also with this, we're trying to link the schools with local astronomy societies so that we can form an astronomy club. And it's a win-win situation all around because many astronomy societies don't have a lot of younger members. They're, they're all sort of 
older <laughs> members of the audience uh, and so that's what we've been doing and it's very important to encourage uh, young people just to get interested in science and technology and astronomy is a hook to get them into science and technology on that I think there's, there's other, other things that they will find. The um, From Earth to the Universe exhibition, we just call it FETU for short because we like abbreviating everything, but this is a fabulous set of images, 50 images on, on big plates, and this is touring the country. It's been in Glasgow, it's been in Belfast, it's been, no, it's been in Dublin, it's now in Edinburgh, and it will be in Manchester. Um, for the science festival at the end of the year. I think that's October, isn't it? I think so, yeah. So that should be really, really good. And I think it's also going into one of the Yorkshire centres for education and it's going to Oxford and it's going to um, <laughs> Belfast. And I think that's the list of all the things I know about. <laughs> so that, that'll be really good. But the images are really, really fabulous. And, and you just watch people walk past them and stop and go, oh, that's, that's interesting. And, and they really are fabulous. So looking for a FETU exhibition near you is, is very, very good. Am I right in saying that there's going to be some things at Glastonbury Festival as well? Yes, this is a very recent thing. I mean, three years ago we thought, well, wouldn't it be really great if we could do something at Glastonbury, I mean, of all places. And uh, recently, uh, sunworshippers.org, uh, they, they have invited uh, some astronomers and they're going to be doing talking about the sun, as you might imagine from sun worshippers. <laughs> and it's in the daytime, of course, so they'll be talking and I think we're having telescopes looking at the sun and talking about the sun. So we're sending two solar physicists down there who are good on outreach and just talking to people. So, yeah, we've made Glastonbury. Whoa, cool. <laughs> So we've been talking mainly about the International Year of Astronomy in the UK, but we have listeners from all around the world. Is the best idea for someone just to go on the website and find out more about their country from there? Absolutely. Virtually every country in the world has signed up to YYA 2009. It's by far the biggest global event I think has ever been done. And within the UK, I've always said the same thing. Go onto the UK webpage and, and log in and find out what's on. I'd say the same thing for anybody in any country. Go into your local page, and if you don't know where your local page is, just go to the global page, www.astronomy2009.org, and that tells you how to find your local page, whether it's America, Canada, South Africa, wherever, India. And, and then your local page should be telling you what's going on. And, and very much, although there's many big global events going on, we've always thought this was going to be delivered locally at the very local level of, of individual village and, and I think that's true across the world. Okay, we'll have all the links for the International Year of Astronomy on our website. Thank you very much for talking to us. You're more than welcome. Thank you. I'm here with Tim Dezeau, the Director General of European Southern Observatory or ESO. So first of all, can you tell me about your position, so some of your responsibilities as ESO Director General and what you do? Yes, thank you. The ESO is a, an intergovernmental organization, which means 14 countries have together decided to uh, build and run observatories in Chile, and they asked me to manage the program for them. So I make sure that uh, the astronomers of the countries are getting their observing time, that the telescopes run smoothly. We're building together with North America, Japan, and Chile the ALMA Observatory at a very high location in Chile, above 5,000 meters, and we're already designing the next step beyond our current flagship, the Very Large Telescope on Paranal, and this is called the European Extremely Large Telescope. And what will this actually bring for science? Um, I think astronomy is in a really interesting time. Society is in an interesting time because the technology that enables all kinds of things for, for us is now so good that we can actually answer two key questions that have been uh, 
asked by our society already for centuries. We can really look all the way back in time to the beginning of the universe by looking at objects that are so far away that their light left them 13 billion years ago when the universe was young, so we see them at that time. So thinking about the night sky on a dark evening means you're really looking at a big history book, namely the entire history of the universe. And astronomers learn how to read that book. And for that you need big telescopes because the objects are very faint. And the same technology allows us now to take images of and find evidence for planets circling, orbiting other stars. You may have heard earlier today there were new announcements on this field. Uh, And there again you need very high technology, big telescopes. Uh, So the VLT has already made steps in that field. ALMA will really understand how planets form and also study the deep universe and the extremely large telescope will take the next step in taking images hopefully of planets that are as small as our own Earth but circling another star. What are the expected costs of ALMA and the EELT? ALMA is uh, costing about a billion and a half dollars of which Europe pays about half a billion euros. The ELT will cost nearly a billion euros. And what is the actual sensitivity of ALMA and the ELT? ALMA will be uh, a factor of 30 more sensitive than any millimeter radio telescope that exists today as an interferometer. And the ELT will be uh, at least 50 times more sensitive than even our flagship VLT at the moment. So the jump that you make in sensitivity and in addition also in sharpness of the image because the mirror is much larger is I think slightly larger than the jump Galileo made when he put his telescope to the eye for the first time 400 years ago and looked at the moons of Jupiter. Mm -hmm. It's really a giant jump and therefore we can obviously um, speculate on what we think it would observe and discover, and I already gave you some examples, Mm -hmm. Uh, but at least historically, whenever a jump like this happens, there was something totally unexpected that would also come. If I knew it today, I would publish a paper, but we will have to wait until the telescope is built. Are there any um, prospective other programs or projects that ESO will be involved in? We try to set up um, a funding system. We need some additional money to build the EELT. Operating it will be fine, but construction costs are uh, are high but we try to set it up in such a way that also 10 years down the line we can operate the VLT mm-hmm. our part of ALMA operate the EELT and have a new wedge of funding for a new project that could be another uh, telescope in the radio regime there are various groups that are thinking about a large radio telescope of the future could be something else it's a little early to make that decision. I first have the ESO Council to, I hope they will agree by the end of next year that they give us the green light for the construction of the ELT. But the planning is such that we continue to both build and operate world-class facilities. Thank you very much. My pleasure. So we're here with Peter Curran from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory at UCL. First of all, thank you for taking the time to speak to me today. Thanks for having me. And could you tell me a little bit about your research, please? My research basically involves taking as much data as we can find for the afterglow, so the long-term mission from the gamma ray burst, and we try to look at it in x-rays and as many optical bands as possible. We then combine the x-ray and the optical to get spectra and light curves, and then we try to find the intrinsic physical parameters that might be at work in the burst itself. 
So the parameters we're interested in mainly is how the blast wave accelerates the electrons. That's one parameter. The next we're interested in is how the density of matter around the star falls off with radius. So we want to know if there's a constant density around a star or does it fall off like you would expect from us a solar wind and we're also interested in trying to find out if there's much energy injection it's thought that at late times the central engine the black hole at the center of the gamma ray burst might still be emitting some energy and we want to try to parameterize or find out how much energy is being released by the gamma ray burst at late times and you can see this in a number of ways either a smooth amount of energy being released or sometimes the energy is released in massive flares some of the flares being almost as energetic as the initial burst itself so that's what i do look at the multi-wavelength data from the grbs to try to get some of the physical parameters of interest is there any favored model for the actual production of a grb jet the favourite model for the production of the jet is referred to as the fireball or blast wave model. A Gerberis starts life as a very massive star, around 20 solar masses. This star reaches the end of its life cycle and begins to collapse down to a black hole. In certain special cases, this collapse will lead to a gamma ray burst. Often a collapse like this leads to a supernova, but in a subsection of that, it will also lead to a GRB. So all the mass that was around the star that made up the outer layers of the star falls into the black hole. As this huge amount of mass falls into a black hole, a lot of gravitational energy needs to be released. The main way this gravitational energy is released is via two symmetric jets which travel along the North Pole and the South Pole of the newly collapsed black hole. These jets plough into the medium around the star, around the black hole, and as they plough into this medium, they act like a pressure wave, almost like a sound wave. Just as the way a sound agitates the particles of air, the blast wave of the GRB agitates or excites the particles, the electrons, around the black hole. When these electrons are agitated, they're accelerated, and then they can interact with the magnetic field and emit radiation via synchrotron emission. This emission is what we're able to see from billions of light years across the galaxy. Most of your GRBs are at quite a high redshift, which means they're at a very high distance from us. So the light from them, by the time we observe it, has traveled 10 billion light years from a time when the galaxy, when the universe, was only around 10% of its current age. So we know there are two types of GRBs, short and long. Could you tell me what the difference is, please? That's right. When they were originally detected, they seemed to fall into two discrete groups with a bit of blur where the line distinguishing them might be. Short GRBs are around less than two seconds, while long GRBs are greater than two seconds in duration. Now, that's not where the differences end. There is actually a physical difference between the two. Long GRBs are caused by the collapse of a massive star into a black hole. Short GRBs are thought to be due to either a neutron star and a neutron star spiraling inwards together and actually coalescing or joining which releases a huge amount of energy or a neutron star in a black hole doing the same thing coalescing and releasing that amount of energy so the actual physical source of the GRB is different however in both cases they release a huge amount of gravitational energy which powers a relativistic jet which is what we can see so what particles are we actually interested in here protons electrons or anything in particular it's mainly the electrons that are accelerated. The protons are too heavy, so the electrons are accelerated, and the main reason we're interested in those is because the electrons are the ones that are able to emit the most energy via the synchrotron emission. Now, you recently gave a talk on uh, particle acceleration in uh, the jets of gamma ray bursts from swift observations. Can you tell me anything further about that, please? 
Yeah, what we did was we looked at a number of Swift GRBs, GRBs that were very well sampled in the X-ray and the optical. So we weren't just using Swift. We were using the X-ray telescope and Swift. We were using the ultraviolet optical telescope and Swift. But we also used a huge number of ground-based observatories from the Canaries to Hawaii to Australian observatories. And we took all of this data, put it together, and we tried to make sense of the, out of the light curves in the spectra. Okay, so there are actual benefits of using the uh, SWIFT telescope data. Before SWIFT arrived, there was a number of satellites, but they were very slow in detecting and reporting a gamma-ray burst. So you might not know about a gamma-ray burst until 12 hours after it happens. And considering a gamma-ray burst only lasts for a couple of seconds, sometimes if a gamma-ray burst lasts for 50 seconds, it's considered a very long gamma-ray burst. It then fades very, very quickly. So 12 hours is way too late to actually detect a gamma-ray burst in most cases. SWIFT, what SWIFT does, it has a gamma-ray detector which detects the burst themselves. And within seconds, the entire SWIFT satellite slews or looks in the direction of the gamma-ray burst. It then looks at it with its X-ray telescope and its optical telescope. These are important because the afterglow, which is that blast wave going into the circumburst medium, is what causes the afterglow, which is what we see in the optical and the X-rays, and which allows us to study the long-term effects of the gamma-ray burst. Are there any benefits of observing gamma-ray bursts at other frequencies, such as radio, once they've actually dissipated in the shock region? Yes, in all the different observing regimes, we can see gamma-ray bursts in from the initial gamma-ray radiation to the longer-term X-ray and optical radiation to the extremely long-term radio radiation. We can find a different piece of the puzzle that's allowing us to put together what's happening within the gamma-ray burst at early times and at late times. Radio can be particularly interesting because even though it's much weaker than any of the other light we see from a gamma-ray burst, it lasts much longer. Most gamma-ray bursts are detected in gamma rays for just a few seconds. They're detected in x-rays and opticals for days to maybe a few weeks. In radio, if they're detected, they can be detected for months or even in some extreme cases, years. With the new LOFAR telescope, which is being built in the Netherlands at the moment, there has been some approximations done, and they think that they'll be able to detect a gamma-ray burst when it comes online next year. They're going to be able to detect a gamma-ray burst that occurred 10 years ago, which will be the latest observation of a gamma-ray burst ever. So are there many actual difficulties with understanding a GRB in terms of its association with maybe its progenitor? There's a lot of selection effects in any of these things. A lot of work has been done in trying to tie down the association between a given gamma-ray burst and, say, its progenitor or its host galaxy. In the case of long gamma-ray bursts, they've been associated with the star-forming regions of galaxies or with star-forming galaxies. However, these are extremely far away, so even if you can see a galaxy, you're not seeing much detail in that galaxy. Short gamma-ray bursts, on the other hand, because of their different progenitors, which we're pretty sure of now, are not associated with star-forming galaxies. They're either associated with different types of galaxies, or they're not associated with galaxies at all. And this is because if short gamma-ray bursts are caused by the coalescing of a neutron star and a neutron star, those neutron stars normally get a kick velocity because those neutron stars are normally formed with a supernova explosion which gives them a kick outside their host galaxy and that's why short gamma ray bursts are not associated with any particular type of host. 
There's still a lot of developments to be made in gamma ray bursts. The first detection of a gamma ray burst was only in the late 1960s, so they've only been around for 40 years. And up until the mid-90s, they were only ever detected in gamma rays for a few seconds. It was only 10 years ago that people started observing them in x-rays and optical, which they were able to observe for a much longer time and start making sense of them. Now the Fermi Space Telescope is detecting a much higher energies than was ever detected before. So that's giving us information about the very early high energy emission. And in general, as the sample, as the number of GRBs we've observed grows, we're getting a little more understanding. At the moment, every GRB seems to be slightly different from the one before it, and some GRBs, more than answering questions, seem to ask more questions. Okay, thank you very much. So, we're here with Sir Arnold Wolfendale, who is a previous Astronomer Royal, and is currently a Emeritus Professor at Durham. Hello, good afternoon. <laughs> Um, so, can you tell me a little bit about your research? Um, have you always been involved in cosmic ray research? Yes, well, one way and another, I have. But halfway through my career, at least I hope it was halfway, um, I got interested in astronomy as such. See, my research was in the field of cosmic rays, these enigmatic particles coming to us from outer space, which incidentally really embraces the whole of radio astronomy because it's the minor component of cosmic rays, electrons, which uh, are deflected by magnetic fields and produce radio signals. But the radio astronomers don't like to be thought of as a subset of cosmic ray physicists, so we won't go into that. But for um, many years I was doing cosmic rays, and then I started to wonder where they came from. That led into astronomy. And being a rather bossy person, I managed to get many of my colleagues interested in astronomy, and they changed their research lines from nuclear physics and so on, moved into astronomy, and now we have one of the biggest and certainly the best groups in astronomy in the world. Uh, but um, I've continued in sort of cosmic rays, cosmic ray astrophysics, the physics of the interstellar medium and all that sort of thing. However, two years ago... I thought, Arnold, the, the, the world needs you to look into global warming because there are some miscreants who said that cosmic rays were producing clouds through their ionization and these clouds, of course, contributed to climate. And indeed, if you reduce cosmic ray intensity, then the cloud cover will go up and the temperature can, can vary. It's a bit complicated, but there should be a correlation. So we spent two years looking into this, and I'm delighted to report there's nothing in it whatsoever. However, there are solar effects, and that has led us into solar physics. And yesterday I hear NAM, I was giving a talk about this aspect, looking at the way in which the surface temperature of the Earth, mean surface temperature, has varied over the last century, and correlated that with the sunspot number. It's a dangerous game, sunspot numbers, because it has strange connotations of sort of insanity among some people. But um, there is an interesting connection, and it's uh, particularly germane because of the global warming problem, because undoubtedly there is a small, finite, positive effect of solar variation on the climate so whereas the, I don't think there's any effect of cosmic rays, there is an effect of the sun. So I spent the last two years with two colleagues working full-time, despite my retirement, on this full stop. So you're not slightly disappointed that the cosmic rays from the sun uh, is not actually correlated with climate change, it's purely man-made? 
I'm delighted because I regard cosmic rays as beautiful and clean and not mm. uh, uh, willing or able to foul up our climate. Mm. And just for the listeners, could you uh, describe what a cosmic ray actually is? Uh, so which kind of particles constitute a cosmic ray? Cosmic rays are mainly, but not entirely, protons, hydrogen nuclei, accelerated in some way through, presumably, magnetic fields in uh, things like uh, exploding stars, supernovae, and other systems, even bigger systems. So you have these particles coming in at the top of the atmosphere. Uh, we're not quite sure where they come from, although we do think that many come from supernova remnants, remains of exploding stars, although uh, some come from uh, outside the galaxy, and that's a topic I've been talking about today. But in addition, there are um, electrons, 1%, thereabouts, heavier nuclei, right up to uranium, and all the fun of the fair. So, proton hits a nucleus in the atmosphere, the nucleus central part of an atom, of, say, nitrogen, breaks it up. Secondary particles, pi mesons, or pions, come out. They decay, most of them, into muons. God knows why muons exist. I spent many years trying to find out and failed. Had I found out, I would have got the Nobel Prize, but I'm still waiting. (laughs) So there we are. But these muons come down to ground level and penetrate underground. Two things. One, There are about five passing through our heads every second. So that's conversation stopper. (laughs) Two, a minute fraction of them penetrate very, very deep underground. And we follow them 7,600 feet underground, where you get about one in a billion penetrating. And the rate there is low enough for you to look for neutrinos that have interacted, hit nuclear rock locally. And we did this in the 60s and discovered the cosmic ray neutrino. Should should have been there, so in a sense, you know. But nevertheless, we discovered it. We concluded that the theory was right and these particles do exist. And these particles, neutrinos, have such enormous penetration that several of them that we saw detected by virtue of their secondary interactions you don't see the neutrino itself. You see what it hits. And very, very rarely it does, but occasionally it does hit something. Several of these have come up through the Earth, all the way up through the Earth. So that's a fascinating area. So that's another type of cosmic ray particle. Mm-hmm. So the subject is still very lively, cosmic ray physics. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into physics? Um, I think I'm going to say you were at Manchester when Blackett was there. That must have been quite an exciting time. It was a very exciting time. Yeah, what happened was, when I was at the grammar school in Stratford, which is near Manchester, Stratford Grammar School for boys, <laughs> my father and mother thought I shouldn't go to a mixed school, but that's another story. <laughs> very wise. I mean, um, I wasn't particularly interested in physics until a new physics teacher came, Mr. Leaning, and he was very keen on experimental physics, and he got me interested, indeed, I was going to be a naval architect, but the war came to an end um, just before I left. It was coming to an end when I left. And I thought, really, there's not much point in being a naval architect if there's no navy. So I became, and I've been interested and turned on by this chap, because I became a physicist. I suppose I should have gone to 
Cambridge or some such. But I wanted to go to Manchester because Blackett was there. Uh, and I needed to stay at home anyway. Parents were both ill and uh, I wasn't too good. So I went to Manchester and enjoyed it very much. Had a staff appointment eventually. Blackett left and then uh, I was promoted. Not because he left. But, um, and then the man who was number two at Manchester, a man called Rochester, who with Butler discovered the V particles in the cosmic radiation for which he should have got a Nobel Prize and didn't, but that is another story again. Uh, he, he was offered and he accepted the chair of physics in Durham because he came from Newcastle. His father was a blacksmith. War's End, it's called. You probably don't know at the end of the Roman War on the eastern side. Very old mining town, industrial town. Uh, so we went for two or three years, and that was in 1956. And we've been there ever since, and I think we'll stay. What are the highest energy cosmic rays? That's a very good question. There are some who think that they're protons, because there is some evidence for the alignment of the directions with certain types of astronomical phenomena called active galactic nuclei. In other words, very special galaxies which are present to the extent of about 2% of all galaxies which have remarkable activity in their nuclei. And it is claimed there are some associations of directions of the particles with these directions to these particular stars, if you like, extragalactic objects. However, we doubt that they're protons and we think instead they are heavy nuclei. And the main reason is that um, if you look at another aspect of the cosmic ray results, which is the big showers that they produce when they come into the atmosphere, uh, and you try and determine the mass, and that's the only way we have of doing it, by looking at the profile of the number of particles as a function of depth in the atmosphere, uh, then you find that they should be heavy nuclei. So if they're not, if they're protons, it means there's something wrong with the nuclear physics that you've used. Well, that may be. So it's a fascinating choice between something wrong with the cosmos and something wrong with nuclear physics. Well, I think it's safer to assume there's something wrong with the cosmos than with the nuclear physics, because the amount of evidence we have about nuclear physics is very large whereas the amount of evidence even now we have, despite the tremendous and marvellous efforts at Jodrell Bank uh, about the uh, uh, cosmos is still rather limited. So there's an argument, and we have to wait for more data. As always, we need more data. We need more data. One thing, talking of Jodrell Bank, that has struck me, <clears throat> do you know Professor Kramer? Uh, he makes measurements... Uh, he and his colleagues on pulsars. Is that what you're doing? Yes, indeed. Well, as I understand it, the uh, accuracy with which pulsars keep time, the best pulsars, the best clocks in the cosmos... The millisecond pulsars, yeah. The accuracy has been superseded by clocks, by atomic clocks, man-made atomic clocks, to the extent of a factor of a few... And whereas, no doubt, a few more precise pulsars will be discovered, I'm quite sure that the accuracy of, man-made accuracy of clocks, 
atomic clocks will get better and better and better with almost without limit. And I think it's very profound that humans can make clocks more accurately or more accurate clocks than the Almighty. And on that happy note, <laughs> I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. So there we are, Arnold Wolfendale there, and we'll have the rest of the interviews from Jenam in the June episode of the Jodcast. And once again, thanks to Jen, Neil and everyone else for doing such a great job. Thanks for throwing us in at the deep end with those. No problem. I also gave you the task of recording our Planck and Herschel launch party here at Jodrell Bank. So I think we'll go straight over to yesterday, May the 14th, and find out what happened. So it's the 14th of May and we're in the physics department in the University of Manchester and we're here for the launch party of the Planck and Herschel satellites which should hopefully be taking place in about 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. We're going to be interviewing some people at Manchester who have been involved in these projects and uh, hopefully learn a lot more about Herschel and Planck and what they're likely to do. So we're going to keep you up to date with uh, everything that's going to go on and uh, it's going to be good. <laughs> this, no. 8, Okay, so it's 40 minutes after the successful launch of Herschel and Planck on board the Ariane 5 rocket. Herschel and Planck have se successfully separated from uh, their compartments and are now on their way to the second Lagrangian point, um, four times distant from the Earth to the Moon. We've all enjoyed a glass of champagne in celebration, and coming up we will be talking to Siska Kemper about the Herschel satellite and Richard Davis about Planck. We've been joined by Dr. Richard Davis, who is the PI of the Low Frequency Instrument on Planck. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you. So could you start by explaining a little bit about Planck and what its objectives are? Well, Planck is a, a, a space telescope to uh, observe over nine frequency channels to map the cosmic microwave background with unprecedented resolution and sensitivity. Am I right in saying that Planck is the third spacecraft to try and do this? It is. Uh, the first one was COBE and the second one was WMAP. Planck is uh, third generation, is cryogenically cooled, has got much wider frequency range um, and is much more sensitive than any previous uh, mission. 
so compared with other satellites, uh, how sensitive is Planck? Uh, it's about five times more sensitive than, uh, than WMAP, but the frequency range uh, is, is very much wider. And uh, one of the problems that we have in trying to study the cosmic microwave background uh, is these things called foregrounds, which is all the other things on the way that we have to look through. And when we first started making these measurements, the measurements were quite crude uh, and the foregrounds weren't too important. But as time's gone on and we get more sensitivity, um, so the foregrounds have become more and more important and you've got to subtract them out. And the only way to do that is to have a very large frequency range, which the Planck satellite has. So what has Manchester's involvement been in Planck? Uh, with the low-frequency instrument, uh, for many years we've been doing research in um, radio waves uh, and, and cosmology and uh, we've been developing our receivers to to have very very low noise temperature and of course they're cryogenically cooled as well and uh, I sort of looked at this and I thought well I don't know we we've, we've got all the things necessary uh, here at Jodrell Bank to um, make the receivers for the Planck satellite so I applied to uh, PPARC as it was then or STFC as it is now I managed to win a grant for um, two and a half million pounds to enable us to build these cryogenic receivers. I was somewhat terrified at the time because the noise temperatures that were required were about three times lower than anything we'd achieved and this has proved to be uh, very, very challenging to meet the requirements of the Planck mission, which I'm happy to say we have done and our receivers are actually the lowest noise receivers that anybody's made uh, in, in the world. We worked with them Marian Pospisielski, who was the uh, designer of the receivers uh, for the for the uh, WMAP mission, he came over and worked with us. And uh, yeah, I saw the look in Frank Winder's eyes when Marian says, "Yes, Frank, I think your amplifiers are better than mine." And uh, so yeah, so that's been very good, and uh, we're obviously overjoyed that um, that we've managed to meet that specification, albeit um, built in in what you might think are sheds in fields at Jodrell Bank in the middle of Cheshire. Um, don't, be, don't be put off or, or get the wrong view of that. Uh, we, we, we've, we've inside those buildings, we've created space environments and uh, got things working up to the very best that you can achieve anywhere in the world. And what are the temperatures at which uh, these receivers uh, operate at? Well, the physical temperature is just under 20 Kelvin, about 18 Kelvin. Um, but the noise, for those of you that aren't scientists, the noise temperature is not necessarily equal to the um, physical temperature. It can be lower or it can be higher. And in this case, we've achieved noise temperatures of around 5 to 7 Kelvin at 30 gigahertz and around 12 to 13 Kelvin at, um, at uh, 44 gigahertz, even though their physical temperature is about 18 or 19 Kelvin. And uh, what frequency range will uh, Planck be operating at? Uh, the low-frequency instrument operates from 30 to 70 gigahertz, and the high-frequency instrument operates from 100 to 857 gigahertz. So it's a very, very wide frequency range. The high-frequency instrument doesn't work with transistors at all. It's essentially going up into the infrared, and it receives its signals with devices called bolometers, which are essentially temperature sensors, because the infrared is just heat, after all. Can you talk a little bit about um, the orbit of which Planck will be... Uh into, so the uh, second Lagrangian point. Right, well I'll try and explain the second Lagrangian point. Firstly, it's a million miles or one and a half million kilometres from the Earth, so if you imagine a straight line starting on the Sun, you then pass through the Earth and continue that straight line on for a further million miles, that's where L2 is. 
and it has the, the magical uh, result that that line remains straight as the Earth uh, orbits the Sun. So it's a heliocentric orbit, so that the, um, basically the Earth and L2 orbit the Sun in the same time. The, uh, the L2 orbit's got to go faster because it's got further to go. It's got to go around... It's got a, bit, a, a bigger orbit, but it, it orbits at the same time. So what you do is you, you put your scra- spacecraft at L2 and you can orient it such that the Earth, the Moon and the Sun are behind you and then you look the other way. You look out into deep, cold space and you, you put solar panels on the back of your spacecraft to power it uh, and you put your radio transmitters to bring the data down on the back of it and then our super, super sensitive radio astronomy receivers are put on the dark side looking out into deep space. So this orbit must mean that no servicing missions can go to Planck's? Absolutely. We always joke that uh, somebody were going to put a chair on the back and somebody could, could fly up there with it. Um, uh, I did actually get one volunteer at one point. With a, um, I pr- pr- managed to persuade this person that it wouldn't be a good idea. Uh, no, there's no servicing possible at the moment. Uh, it takes a lot of energy. You saw the size of that Ariane 5 rocket. In fact, the... Uh, the, the final stage of the Ariane 5 rocket goes out to L2 with the two spacecraft because we, we haven't got enough energy to stop it uh, and, and certainly to, to try and bring something back in again. Uh, so that we haven't got any rockets big enough to, to go out to L2 and come back at this stage and, and it would cost a fabulous, fabulous amount of money. So at the moment L2 is, is you just send your stuff there and hope and pray you've got it right. So we know that Planck is actually set to observe the cosmic microwave background. Are there any other projects of which, any science projects which uh, Planck will be involved in? Oh yes. Um, yeah. Planck only goes down to 30 gigahertz and it turns out a lot of these foregrounds are uh, coming in at lower frequency and really to untangle them we'll have to make measurements at, uh, at lower frequencies and uh, I won't bore you with all the names but there's lots and lots of different experiments which will be ground based um, which we can do at these lower frequencies we don't need to go into space for the, the very low frequencies uh, which will be backing up um, Planck uh, I, I guess the, the Planck mission in terms of uh, the cosmic microwave background and cosmology is, is going to be the biggest mission of the decade. We've got nothing else on the cards. Uh, even if we started building now, I doubt whether we'd have something up for the next mission in 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 ten more years. So th- this this is the big this is the big experiment of the decade. And of course, it's a great relief that we've actually got up there. And I'm overjoyed that uh, we do seem to be communicating with both the satellites. They they do appear to have got up there and. Uh, They've emerged from their cocoons that they were in on the top of the rocket and uh, um, everything looks fine at this stage. For me, the uh, terrifying day is day 25 because on day 25, that's when we switch the LFI on. So we don't really know what state the LFI is in. We know that the main communications and the main satellites are okay, but we don't know what LFI is like till day 25. And so I slept last night, but I shan't sleep the day before day 25. How long is Planck expected to be up for and operating for? Right, well, it takes 50 days to get to L2, and then it takes a further 40 days to calibrate. So it's after day 90, which is effectively three months from now, we start observing. The uh, main mission is to observe for one year, uh, but if all goes well, there's plenty of fuel on board and plenty of everything on board to run it for a further year. Uh, A survey takes six months, so in six months uh, orbiting the sun, you map the whole sky. So the plan is, the the nominal mission is two surveys, two lots of six months, but there are two more planned, which will make four surveys, and uh, there is enough fuel for yet another one. 
Um, so we wait, we wait to see how well it all performs in space. So all the research agencies know this in trepidation that we, obviously, while the thing's up there, we want to run it as long as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. So we hope everything goes to plan then. Indeed, yes. Okay, so thank you very much. Okay, thank you. We're here with Dr. Tess Jaffe, who's uh, here to talk to us about the uh, CMB and a little bit about the science. So, first of all, can you tell us what the CMB actually is? Well, the CMB is basically the heat that's left over from the Big Bang. When we look out at the universe today, we can see that everything is moving away from us. Everything is moving away from everything else. That doesn't mean we're at the center of the universe, just everything is moving away from everything else. And you extrapolate back in time, everything must have been a lot closer together. And if you get things really dense, they start to heat up. And so we imagine that in the early universe, everything was very, very hot. And the radiation left over from that is what we see today as the cosmic microwave background. It's cold radiation. It's about 3 Kelvin, which we measure in the microwave bands. And microwaves are possible to observe from the Earth, but it's easier to get above the atmosphere, so we tend to observe them from space, thus the launch of the Planck satellite. And just for our listeners, Kelvin is a measure of temperature, and 273 degrees Kelvin is zero degrees Celsius. It's very, very cold. It's the coldest radiation. So the point of observing the CMB is, first of all, when it was first discovered in the 60s, it was the first direct evidence that the Big Bang hypothesis was, in fact, likely to be true. At the time, there was a great deal of debate about whether the Big Bang was remotely realistic. The term itself was coined in a derogative way. It was meant, you think the universe started in some kind of Big Bang? And the term stuck. And it turns out that, yes, the universe did start in some kind of a Big Bang. And one of the key pieces of evidence of that is the fact that if you look around in any direction, you see the heat that's left over. You see the CMB. Now, the CMB is not just one temperature of 3 Kelvin. It's actually got minute fluctuations. They're very small fluctuations of 10 to the minus 5. So we're talking about millikelvin and microkelvin fluctuations. And those fluctuations encode a lot of information about the physics in the very early universe. The radiation itself comes from about a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, which was almost 14 billion years ago. So it's telling us about the very, very early universe. It's basically a snapshot of the birth of the universe. And the fluctuations have a lot of physics in them. There's information about a lot of different physics. And in particular, one of the things that Planck hopes to detect is fluctuations in the polarization of this radiation, which we hypothesize are due to gravity waves in the early universe, which will tell us a lot about inflation theory, what happened in the first 10 to the minus 34 seconds of the universe's life. Wow, that's pretty impressive. That is very impressive. So the Planck satellite is actually going to be uh, cryogenically uh, cooled. Uh, What's the reasoning for this? Well, if you want to detect a very cold radiation, your detectors have to be very cold as well, in short. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. It was a pleasure. So we're joined by uh, Dr. Siska Kemper, who's also here at the launch party with us, and she'll be involved in the Open Time Key Projects uh, with Herschel. Can you tell us a little bit about Herschel? So um, the frequency observation range and what it's uh, going to do for science. So uh, Herschel is in fact the largest telescope that has been, or at the the moment that has been uh, launched into space. It's got a mirror of three and a half meters 
And uh, with that size of mirror, it's very suitable to study the infrared. And we're looking specifically at wavelengths longer than 50 microns. So recently there have been observatories looking at wavelengths shorter than 50 microns, but now we're going to longer than 50 microns, which is uh, the domain where you can see uh, thermal emission from relatively cold dust, so dust that is sort of a few hundred or less uh, degrees Kelvin. So this is the dust that you find in star-forming regions, sort of ambient presence in, in galaxies, and it can go down all the way to just, you know, tens of Kelvins. Uh, so it's a very large wavelength range covering from about 50 microns to about 800 microns. Uh, it's got three instruments on board. It's got Hi-Fi, Spire and Pax, and it's got spectroscopic and photometric capabilities. Just for our listeners, a micron is a micrometer, right? A micrometer, yes. <laughs> that is one thousandth of a millimetre, yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us about the key science projects which uh, Hash will be involved in? Um, or is that a secret? Is no, that a secret? No, no, no. <laughs> the Open Time Key Programme that I'm involved in is called Heritage, which um, aims to observe the large and small Magellanic clouds, which are satellite galaxies, their own Milky Way galaxy. Uh, they're quite small galaxies, but because they're so close by, it's, they're actually really interesting goals, or interesting targets for us to study, because we can actually look at individual components in these galaxies and try to work out um, what exactly what are the constituents of, this, of, of these galaxies. So what we've done so far is we've looked in uh, sort of shorter wavelengths where you see a lot of the hot dust and you trace a lot of the sort of uh, stellar components uh, of these galaxies. And now with Herschel, we're going to focus on the colder parts of the, of the spectrum and we're going to see the colder dust present in, um, in these galaxies. So we're tracing more of the star-forming regions. We're tracing sort of the, the structure of the interstellar medium in these, in these galaxies. Could you talk us through the, uh, the imaging procedure or the actual receivers which you'll use on Herschel? Okay, so, so Herschel has got three instruments on it. It's got uh, PAX, the Photodetector Array Camera and Spectrometer. It's got Spire, the Spectral and photom- Photometric Imaging Receiver. And it's got HiFi, the Heterodyne Instrument for the Far Infrared. And these three instruments all observe in three very different parts of the far infrared. So PAX is the one that uh, observes in wavelengths that are closest to the, um, to the optical, so closest to what we can observe. Uh, with the naked eye and it looks at wavelengths between 50 and about 200 microns and in this wavelength range we are sensitive predominantly to sort of dust of mid-range temperatures so maybe about 100 kelvin or so and and lower and this still traces things like star formation and and the imaging capabilities allow us to actually map the structure of star forming regions of the regions that contain a somewhat hotter dust Uh, and we can we can see where concentrations of material occur in a variety of environments really and then with the spectroscopy we can look at actual compositions of the dust the spectroscopic component is uh, relatively high resolution but not all that high so we can we can look at, uh, at dust features predominantly with packs if we go to the longer wavelengths we've got two instruments that, that are important we've got spire which is which is very similar to packs apart from that it operates at longer wavelengths so once again we've got a uh, a photometric component so we can we can we can survey the structures but now we're looking at colder dust because we're looking at longer wavelengths so we're looking at large-scale structures within galaxies, for instance, tracing the arms, tracing all sorts of uh, structures. 
and we've got the spectroscopic component to that. And then the, the, the third instrument is called Hi-Fi, which is a very high-resolution re- spectroscopic instrument operating at roughly the same wavelength as Spire. And this is very, very suitable to study all sorts of complex molecules in, in space in all sorts of environments because we have the sort of the precision to, to make out what molecules are present. Another advantage of looking at the, the far infrared, these wavelengths that we're looking at, is that we are, it's, it's very suitable to study galaxies at high redshift because things that we normally observe in mid-infrared wavelengths now suddenly uh, move to longer wavelengths and, and we can suddenly study uh, uh, star formation activity at these wavelengths in the distant universe. So could you explain to us why we have to do infrared observations from space? Okay, well, um, infrared observations from space are extremely important because if you look at a galaxy as a whole, what, you, what you'll see is that of all the energy that the galaxy produces, up to 90% of this energy actually leaves the galaxy in the form of infrared radiation. So it is our ultimate tool to look very distant, to very um, great distances in the universe, and we can trace a lot of galaxies by looking in the infrared. Infrared radiation is formed because optical light and UV uh, light are reprocessed by um, dust particles and um, absorbed and re-emitted by the dust and then re-emitted in the infrared. So you not only do you trace galaxies on themselves, you also trace the population of the, of the dust in these galaxies. And if you look on a sort of a sub-galaxy scale, if you're interested in the various components within a galaxy, then infrared radiation will tell you exactly where concentrations of dust are and where, therefore, star formation is going on. So it traces distant galaxies and it traces star formation environments and this is why looking in infrared is very important. Can you detect infrared emission on the ground or does it have to be from space? Yeah, right. So th- this is actually uh, one of the major obstacles we've uh, encountered with um, infrared astronomy. So um, while we do have a couple of windows in the infrared, we have a lot of windows in the near infrared um, around sort of two micron and uh, thereabouts. And then we've got a few mi- windows in the mid infrared at 10 and at about 20 microns, for which you actually have to uh, position your telescope on, on a big mountain, really, to make sure that you're above most of the atmosphere. If you're interested in any of the other wavelengths, and especially the longer wavelengths, where the majority of the infrared radiation uh, comes from, the Earth's atmosphere is going to block most of that radiation. So in order to uh, be able to access that wavelength range, you'll have to go into space. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Okay, no problem. You're welcome. So it's been a very exciting few hours for us here in the physics department at the University of Manchester. We've seen the successful launch of Herschel and Planck, but we have to wait quite a while before they get to their orbit points. Neil, any final words? Um, yeah, we'll try and keep you up to date with what's happening and, uh, yeah, stay in touch. So thank you once again to Richard Davis, Siska Kemper and Tess Jaffe for doing those interviews during a very busy time. We were all quite stressed yesterday um, leading up to that launch as some people have spent many years of their life. Richard Davis, I know, has spent since 1996 working on Planck, so I've only spent three or four years. So I think you still lost quite a bit of hair yesterday. <laughs> I know, it's all it's all dropping out in chunks. Now, Planck and Herschel launching was the, the third of three important events this week in space-based astronomy. We mentioned at the beginning of the show that the Hubble servicing mission went up on Monday, that was on uh, STS-125 Atlantis. I've not been paying much attention, I've been too busy with Planck and Herschel. Jen, have you been following along on the mission? 
I've been following it a little bit. I think yesterday, so the 14th again, I think that they did the first spacewalks to actually go and get Hubble. It was quite impressive watching. I did watch them grab the HST, which was pretty cool. And my random fact of the day is that apparently there were two basketballs on the Atlantis, one of which was actually used by Hubble in 1909 in a game at the University of Chicago, I think. So there's a random fact for you. So did they take them up with them? On they've, the... ta- they've taken them up. They had a problem deflating. It wasn't already on on the Hubble Space Telescope. No, no, no. These there. are ones that they've, they've just taken up and then they're going to bring back down. I think they're going into a museum. And the second big event in space-based astronomy this week was NASA's Kepler spacecraft, which launched about two months ago and has been slowly heading away from the Earth. Its aim is to look at for extrasolar planets, and they've spent the last two months calibrating their instruments on the spacecraft. And as of Wednesday the 13th of May, they've finished that, and they've now headed on to doing some science, so we'll be expecting some results any time soon. And of course on Thursday we had the successful launch of the Ariane 5 from French Guiana, which was amazing. It went exactly to plan. Everything happened to the second. It was I was very impressed. I'm so used I, to... I was waiting for something to go wrong, if I'm being honest. Well, I think we all were <laughs> hoping that nothing would go wrong. So now, now we just have to wait for it to actually get to L2. No, those of us at Jordan Bank working on it actually have to spend the next three months doing the characterization. We've got three months of that to come. So we'll be spending a lot of time looking at data and trying to tune the instruments and make them as good as they could possibly can be. So now Mark Perver is going to put all of your astronomical questions to Jodrell Bank's very own Tim O'Brien. Now it's time to ask an astronomer. The first question comes from Marion Fraser. She's received an interesting email about Mars. The email that she's received claims that Mars will be so close to the Earth in August that it will look the same size as the Moon, and she's wondering if that's true. (laughs) Well, the quick answer is no, it's not true. Um, But just the backstory to this, I think this is a... uh, not quite a spam email, but it's, get, it's getting there, which uh, I think started circulating in around about 2003. And uh, I'll explain why in a minute. But I, but I noticed recently I've received, well, several emails. It's not just Marion's had. There's other people have sent forwarded it on to me, actually, in the last month or so. So it's obviously started doing the rounds again. Um, and, yeah, of course, um, you know, if Mars got to be the size of the full moon in the sky, I think we'd all think that was quite spectacular. <laughs> we'd be able to see, um, you know, all different sorts of features on the surface of Mars very easily with the naked eye. And, it's yeah, it's not going to get that big. But there is some, um, you know, there's some truth. There's a, As usual, there's a kernel of truth in these things. Uh, and in this case... Um, it's the fact that, Mo- that that Mars occasionally comes closer than it does at other times to the Earth and therefore appears larger. So um, if you think about imagine the solar system, you think about the sun sort of at the centre and the Earth orbiting around and then out beyond that, Mars orbiting around. Then you can imagine at times uh, Mars is closer to the Earth than at other times. And of course, as the... As the Earth sort of overtakes Mars on the inside, um, that's really the point at which they get the closest together, and that would be the point at which Mars would appear the largest. Um, now that turns out, just because of the relative distances from the Sun, it turns out that that occurs about every two years and two months. So about every two years and two months, the Earth passes on the inside of Mars, and so Mars looks at its biggest. Now, the, the distances between, from the Earth to the Sun is uh, about uh, it's 1.5 times 10 to the 8 kilometres, um, so that's 150 million kilometres, the, the distance from the Earth to the Sun. And the distance from Mars to the Sun is uh, 230 million kilometres. 
So in fact, if you just subtract the two, you'd expect to get the closest separation being 80 million kilometres. Yeah. Now, what happens is you get some variation around that because actually the orbits aren't circular. Um, they're elliptical. Um, Mars's orbit's actually rather more elliptical than the Earth's. So you can imagine just depending on where they are in that elliptical orbit, you'll get closer approaches. And also they're, they're inclined at an angle. And again, it would depend just where you were in that orbit as to whether you were closer. There's even some sort of minor effects due to the effects in the moon on the Earth and so on that you, you have to factor in. Well, basically, um, as I say, this, this sort of thing arose because in, in 2003, um, the distance of the closest approach was was about 56 million kilometres. So I remember I just said the sort of average value would be 80 million. So the, it did get as close as 56 million. So it would have appeared, you know, proportionally that much larger. 2005, it was 69 million. Um, 2007, 88 million. Um, 2010, 99 million. So you can see it's sort of rising a bit. Uh, again, the next time it gets, you know, almost as close as it did in 2003 is actually not till um, 2018, when in fact it's sort of 50, 58 million uh, kilometers away. So it's just that sort of variation. So, so yeah, much smaller than the moon. Much smaller than the moon. Yeah. Second inquiry comes from Sarah. She is uh, looking for an online lunar calendar of the southern hemisphere, but so far she's been unable to find one, and is hoping that you can point her to a suitable website. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I do this sort of thing occasionally, just sort of looking, in fact, just to give you a preview of something we're doing at Jodrell, we're doing a sort of exciting event around the time of the, uh, the 40th anniversary of the moon landings in, in, in July. You know, the, obviously the Apollo 11 moon landing was in July of 1969. So we're, we're going to run an event that will tell you all about on the Jodcast later in the summer. Um, but of course, for that reason, I was interested in where the moon was. So there's various online resources that would do that for you, but the one I would uh, commonly go to first is actually something provided by the United States uh, Naval Observatory, um, the USNO. Um, so you could just d- you know do a Google for Naval Observatory and position of Moon, but we'll put the we'll put the link for uh, we'll put the link for this on our website. The, the U.S. Naval Observatory is actually turns out it provides quite a lot of handy astronomical data and, and, and web calculators on, on their web pages. It's actually the, the official um, source of time for the, for the USA. So they have the atomic clocks and things that do the time. So it's, it's sort of grown out of that whole uh, history of navigation being linked to astronomy, which is why it would have been Naval Observatory originally. Um, but for example, they do things like astronomical calculators like rise and set times for both the sun and the moon, phases of the moon and so on. So yeah, they've got a nice thing there that just you can, can put in what US city or town you're in or for certainly for, for this case when we're talking about Southern Hemisphere, um, there's locations worldwide as well, in which case you um, you would put in your, your longitude and latitude and it'll come back and it'll give you the sort of lots of different bits of information on what, what's happening with the moon, what's happening with the sun and, and so on and so forth through the year. So we'll stick a link to that on the website. Okay. The last question is a... A theory question from Paul Saxton. He says, I have heard and read with fascination a lot about string theory in the last few years. Do the Jodrell team think that they'll be able to contribute at some point to confirming some of the implications of this mind-blowing theory? <laughs> yeah, well, um, I mean, perhaps we should just uh, just say very briefly what string theory is. Um, I mean, string theory is um, a theory of, of particle physics, basically. So it's a, it's a theoretical physics concept that relates to how we understand the, the very tiniest constituents of, of matter. So 
things like um, electrons, um, things like quarks that make up the, uh, the, the, the particles like protons and neutrons that are in the nucleus of an atom. Um, and traditionally, those things would have been thought of as sort of point-like particles. And what string theory did was to, to, to uh, take a different approach to understanding their behavior, was to model them as uh, effectively as one-dimensional objects, uh, uh, lines effectively, vibrating strings. And then what happens is that the, the, the observed properties of the particle then depend in some sense on the properties of the vibration, so its frequency and, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's you know it's it's been it's one of the major um, theories of, of of modern particle physics. But the, I guess the problem with it is um, is how do you test it? You know yeah. how can you tell whether it's really true or not? Um, and and I think that um, it's a theory that it's really it's high energy particle physics. So so in some sense you'd want to recreate um, the highest energies to try and look for observable consequences of this theory. And so one way in which that that might be done is in um, major particle physics colliders, like the colliders at CERN uh, and, el and elsewhere, and the theories would predict certain properties of the collisions and so on. Now, in fact, here at Jodrell, we don't have any uh, particular role in those experiments. But what we do um, have a role in, as the listeners will probably be aware, is is in studying the the cosmic microwave background radiation. So this is the uh, the the relic radiation of the Big Bang. And of course, the point here is that that conditions a fraction of a second after the Big Bang are the sorts of conditions in which the the effects of this sort of string theory might actually produce some observable consequence. Um, now, uh, in particular, what's, what's obviously happened this week is that we've launched um, the Planck spacecraft, um, and the Planck spacecraft is designed to, to basically provide the, the 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 best ever map of the of the fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background in this fading glow of the Big Bang. So this was this light that set off, um, you know, about three hundred eighty thousand years after the Big Bang, and has been stretched out into the microwave part of the spectrum now. But embedded within it, sort of imprinted in it, is this the sort of fossils, the relic of the of the tiny changes in physical conditions that were true around 380,000 years after the Big Bang. But in fact, those things were probably imprinted, uh, you know, within them. There's some sort of signature of perhaps um, this idea of something called inflation in cosmology, which was that um, a tiny fraction of a second, 10 to the minus 34 um, seconds after the Big Bang. Um, so if you think about that, what that means, 10 to the minus 2 is, is, is 0 0.01. So 10 to the minus 34 is actually point thirty-three zeros and a 1. <laughs> so it's a tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang. We think that maybe the universe expanded at basically super light speed, um, um, maybe becoming something like 10 to the 30 times larger. So that's a 1 followed by 30 zeros um, than it was before inflation. Um, and so in the, in the cosmic microwave background, it's possible that there's this, there's the signatures in those, in those fluctuations that would, uh, give us a clue as to whether, uh, string theory was, was really true or not. And that's one of the more, we can't, we're not really sure because we don't know at what energy scale these, uh, these theories really apply, but it's possible that it, that it, that it would left behind a signature that Planck will be able to detect. So I guess we might hear more about that from the, the group here in, uh, Maybe in the next couple of years. Is it possible that a detection of a gravitational wave background could uh, probe back to, yeah, to, to even earlier than the cosmic microwave background? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what, that's the sort of thing that, I mean, there's lots of different things. The sorts of, um, 
basically gravitational waves are these sort of ripples that, that, you know, if they were passing through us now, they'd sort of be stretching and squashing us all the time. And again, if you can um, look for those, uh, the signature of those gravitational waves having affected the, the, the plasma that, that became transparent that the CMB um, arises in, then you can actually, again, you can test those theories of what happened before the cosmic microwave background. Because, of course, the, you know, the usual, usual, um, thing to talk about is that the, in a sense, the cosmic microwave background is the oldest light that we'll see. Because when the, uh, ages when the universe was younger than 380,000 years, it was so dense that light was forever scattering off free electrons. So light, uh, scatters off electrons in, 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 in the plasma that of the early universe. And so it's like walking around in a fog. Um, mm. you can't see very far because the light is scattering off the water droplets. But as the universe expanded, that fog thinned. Uh, in this case, what happened actually is the electrons then recombine with the, the protons and you make the first hydrogen atoms, for example. You've re- massively reduced the number of free electrons. You reduce the amount of scattering of light and that light becomes free to travel. Effectively, the fog clears. The universe becomes transparent. That, that light, um, was originally a sort of dullish orange red. Um, temperature, temperature of the universe was about 3000 degrees, you know, something like Betelgeuse, that sort of mm. color, the, the red giant star. Um, and that light's been expanded out now by maybe a factor of a thousand. And so it's now the wavelengths increased by a factor of a thousand. It's now in the invisible microwave spectrum. But yeah, studying the details of what the, the fluctuations in the intensity, the temperature of that, of that cosmic microwave background is actually telling us something about the physics that was happening up to that point. Well, thanks to the listeners for those questions and thanks, Tim, for answering them. That's no problem. Speak to you again next month. Thanks for that, Mark and Tim. And that brings us to the point in the show where we talk about your listener feedback. We do enjoy getting your feedback and we sometimes act upon it. Let's start with the emails. We had emails from Rosanella de Costanzo, Randy Green, John Hacklander, Corey Phillip from Lansing, Michigan, and from Kelly Sonara. So thanks to all of those people for sending in their feedback. There's been a lot of discussion on the forum about the May edition. I think people particularly liked the Star Wars intros and outros, even though Stuart hadn't even seen Star Wars at the time of recording. Well, I'd seen episodes one and two of the new ones. Um, Somehow I managed to miss four, five, and six while I was growing up, and that shocked a lot of people, and they, they told me I should have my geek card taken away from me, so it's been taken away. But you've now watched them, so I guess we can reinstate I have. It. I've now watched Star Wars in the correct order. You're one of the few people to have done that. Yes, and I, I do have to say that 4, 5 and 6 are far better than 1, 2 and 3. And also in the forum, a couple of listeners have been inspired by the Jodcast to go and do astronomy outreach of their own. Rob Bowman was inspired to submit an episode of the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. That episode should be out on November the 28th, so Jodcast listeners go along and give him some support by listening on November the 28th, if you remember. Put it in your diaries now. And Chris B has volunteered to give a talk about astronomy to his local school for ages 8 to 9 and was asking for some ideas and thankfully a few Jodcast listeners have been quite helpful there and given him some suggestions. So if any of you have any suggestions for Crispy, go along to the forum and put them out there. And over on iTunes we had reviews from Bruno.Edwards, from Katie Calvert, that's a second review from Katie, and from Adam Lane. So thank you very much to those people who've reviewed us on iTunes, it does help. And something we've forgotten to do for a while is look at the postcards. We've, we've been slowly collecting up a few postcards here. We had three postcards all in one envelope. It's quite exciting. It is, from Joe Snyder from Wisconsin. Um, We've got some from the South Dakota Badlands from Montana and something that I recognise from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Devil's Tower in the National Monument. So you have seen some cult sci-fi films? I have, yes. 
And regular Jodcast correspondent Jason Hill has sent us a rather snazzy 3D postcard from the islands of Guernsey. And it shows us a rather snazzy 3D map from space of the islands of Guernsey. So thank you very much from Jason Hill, who says, Hugs and kisses to you all, Jod on. So remember, if you want to keep in touch with us, you can go to the forum at forum.jodcast.net. There's been a bit of a lack of activity on Facebook, so if you can remember to head on over there, it's jodcast.net forward slash Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. And that brings us to the end of this May extra edition of the Jodcast for 2009. That just leaves us to say thank you to Ian Robson, to Tim Dezew, Peter Curran, Arnold Wolfendale, Richard Davis, Siska Kemper and Tess Jaffe. So until next time, Jod on. Bye everyone. <laughs>